This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. So as the weather warms up, we're outside gardening or doing yard work. There are so many opportunities for skin issues, right? And for me, it's always a mystery to know what's going to irritate my skin, but I'm definitely out there itching and scratching. But the good news is active skin repair always seems to save the day. Active skin repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, and other types of skin damage. It's also safe and non-toxic, making it suitable for use on all skin types, all parts of the body, and even on rosacea, eczema, and acne-prone skin. Here's what I want you to do. Visit ActiveSkinRepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and get 20% off your order when you use code JOYFUL. Again, that's www.ActiveSkinRepair.com. Find out more about the product and get 20% off your order when you use the code JOYFUL. Hey, welcome to the Joyful Courage Podcast, a place for inspiration and transformation as we try and keep it together while parenting our tweens and teens. This is real work, people. And when we can focus on our own growth and nurturing the connection with our kids, we can move through the turbulence in a way that allows for relationships to remain intact. My name is Casey O'Rourke. I am your fearless host. I'm a positive discipline trainer, space holder coach, and the adolescent lead at Sproutable. I am also the mama to a 20-year-old daughter and 17-year-old son walking right beside you on this path of raising our kids with positive discipline and conscious parenting. This show is meant to be a resource to you, and I work really hard to keep it real, transparent, and authentic so that you feel seen and supported. Today is an interview, and I have no doubt that what you hear will be useful to you. Please don't forget, sharing truly is caring. If you love today's show, please pass the link around, snap a screenshot, post it on your socials, or text it to your friends. Together, we can make an even bigger impact on families all around the globe. I'm so glad that you're here. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited to introduce you to my guest today. Her name is Kira Fanlow. Kira is an adult who's recovered from traumatic and challenging teen years. She knows what works for teenagers. She knows what teens are going through and she knows what they need. Kira has spent years working with adolescents and families as a guide throughout their journey and shares her story to offer others' understanding and hope. I'm so excited for you to be here, Kira. I'm so excited to hear more about your story. I'm most excited for the listeners to have the opportunity to hear from somebody who's really been through the trenches as a teen. So yay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Casey. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, I am so happy that you're here too and that we were able to make this work. So much of what I've read about your story on your website and having you on that same summit that I was on, the Moms of Teens and Tweens, so much of it reminds me of how I imagine my now 20, nearly 21-year-old daughter felt Mm -hmm. and went through during her mid-teen years. 
I know that your sharing is going to give a lot of insights to the parents listening. Will you tell us your story? Tell us about what your experience yeah. was and what's really inspired you to do the work yeah. that you're doing. Yeah, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version because I was, I'm sure okay. you know, I used to joke like every time I would go to a new therapist, I was like, I wish I just had like a pamphlet and I could be like, here, yeah. here is everything <laughs> you need to know. So I'll give you like the condensed version. So okay. your speaking about my teenage years, which definitely those were the most intense. And that's kind of the crux of my story and my journey. But my challenges with my mental health started from a really, really young age. Mm -hmm. I remember, I'd say it was probably about the time I was eight. And I remember just feeling this intense sadness and loneliness. Mm -hmm. And I started going to therapy around that time too, because I think my mom wanted to get me support because I was constantly talking about how sad and lonely I was. So I started therapy at eight and then my parents got divorced when I was nine and that was really hard for me. And we'd been moving back and forth between two cities. So I was that same year at my fourth new school in four years and kind of constantly felt like I'm an outsider always, like I don't belong anywhere. And I started self-harming when I was 10. And I started taking meds at 12, but... Were the meds for like depression, mm -hmm. anxiety? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. And ADHD too at that time. Okay. Okay. But I was very functional at that age. Like I was a really good student. I kind of figured out how to make friends, even though I had been a really lonely and strained mm -hmm. younger child and was involved with school activities. So even though I was still sad inside, I was doing okay enough to not raise any sense of alarm. But man, then I got to high school and it was just like a disaster. <laughs> yeah. And it was like kind of a slow descent, but it's like everything's connected. So one mm -hmm. part of your life is suffering. It's like, it kind of bleeds into everything. And so in high school, you know, I started struggling with self-harm a lot more. I stopped going to school. I was fighting with my parents all the time and was really, really in very, very dysfunctional patterns. And so first my parents tried to help me with therapy and medication at home. Mm -hmm. And that didn't really seem to have much of a measurable impact. In fact, I actually seemed to be getting like worse, like every month things were just getting worse and worse. And then I did an outpatient DBT program at home and then mm -hmm. I got sent to an inpatient residential hospital where I did DBT there as well. I came home from the hospital on something called a home contract, which is a common practice in the residential treatment community where you agree to certain conditions to be allowed to return home. And I remember at that time, like I actually felt kind of validated when I first was sent to the hospital because I felt so unwell. Like I felt like something was mm -hmm. really wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And so when I first got sent there, I actually felt a sense of relief because I thought, oh, other people also recognize that. This is kind of a confirmation that there is something the matter. And that actually brings me a sense of relief and hope that maybe this is going to help. And it really didn't for me. I came home and I was had not really addressed any of the root causes of what was going on. I learned better coping skills, but I didn't feel fundamentally different. Can I ask you a question? Absolutely. Did do you feel like it was the focus of the program that you were in or do you feel like it was just you as a teenager 
and your willingness to go into those deeply rooted things. And I ask, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just, I'm so curious because I remember with my daughter, you know, when things were so hard at home and she was going to therapy and she came home and said, my therapist said I can go to every other week. And I was like, really? Interesting. (laughs) I'm looking at all of these external things that do not indicate that you're like improving or Mm -hmm. getting it together. Mm -hmm. And so when I went with her to her next appointment and I was curious, and I mean, Rowan would not lead somebody into her darkness. She needed a skilled practitioner to create a space where it felt safe for her. Yeah. To go there and to kind of guide her there. Yeah. So what was your experience? Do you remember? I think that's a really valuable point to make that, especially when someone is so, and myself included, I was so steeped in my own kind of worldview and I couldn't see what I couldn't see. Yeah. And so I really did need someone who was going to be able to draw my attention to kind of, because I think what's happening a lot for teenagers that was a hundred percent happening for me is that I was unconsciously forming these narratives and stories and not realizing that they were stories I was making up, like stories like I'm not lovable or people are always going to abandon me. Like I wasn't consciously thinking, oh, story, let me file that away. I was just absorbing them and they felt as real as like the sky is blue. They just felt like truth. Yeah. And so I wouldn't have even known to kind of bring those up to unpack and look at. Mm. I didn't even know they were like stories in my head. I think also there was something about the environment too, because after the hospital, I got sent to wilderness. And that was really, Mm -hmm. for me, the place where my healing sort of commenced Mm -hmm. because that environment brought everything into the surface. Like you could not avoid being stressed out or feeling sad. In the wilderness. So it was such an intense environment. Like, I promise you, (laughs) your stuff is going to come out (laughs) real quick. And in the hospital, like, you know, I don't mean to, sp- I'm not a spokesperson for everyone, but people would joke the hospital that I went to was called Silver Hill. And people would jokingly call it either a silver pill because for another thing it was very medication heavy. So a mm-hmm. lot of their kind of first course of action was like, we're going to put you on meds. And if you're still upset, mm-hmm. we're going to put you on even more meds. And there mm-hmm. wasn't actually a whole lot of investigation into the emotional piece. And the other kind of joking name for it was the Silver Hilton because it was so like comfortable you know? Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. it just felt like- You could avoid. Yeah. Like it was, you know, it was not a comfortable environment because I had no privacy. You couldn't leave. There were plenty of uncomfortable rules and regulations like strip searches, for example, that were not, you know, commonplace if someone was staying at just a Hilton hotel. But I was able to not go into stuff and it was not hard to just like stay on the surface of things. Yeah. That's so interesting because I know there's more to your story, Mm -hmm. but I just want to pause right here because one of the things that I talk about and that, you know, I'm a positive discipline trainer. Mm -hmm. So that's the Mm -hmm. foundation that I stand on. And one of the tools that we use and that we share with parents is this idea of belief behind behavior. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us use the image of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. right? And that there's what we see at the surface Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that so often we want to like make go away. We want to chip away at the surface. But what we don't see and what's oftentimes 
fueling what's happening at the surface is what's going on underneath. Yeah. And so it's yeah. wild to think about, you know, your experience of being in this, like, it feels like a big deal, right? Like yeah. inpatient, yeah. Yeah. you're in the hospital yeah. and yet they're missing this opportunity for digging into what's going on mm-hmm. under mm-hmm. the surface. And I say that, and I know that there are really useful skilled practitioners in the world, but just like this gal that Rowan went to, I mean, she had adolescence on her website Mm -hmm. and I was like, what the fuck? Like Mm -hmm. you're missing everything here and you're expecting my daughter who presents really well for an hour for you. Yeah. Yeah. Who at home isn't leaving the room. Yeah. Won't go to, you know, has dropped out of school, is using substances, has potential eating disorder, like all of this shit's going on. And you're like, let's go to every other week. Like, Are you new? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So you go to wilderness. Where did you go? Were you in Utah? Doesn't everybody go to Utah? If someone ever tells you they went to boarding <laughs> school in Utah, you know they were in a treatment school. <laughs> because Utah is one of the states that has the least regulations for, mm, for yeah. treatment programs for youth. So that's why there's a lot of programs there. It's also in the desert. So the one that I went to was actually in Colorado. So I was in the mountains okay. for mine. Yeah. All right. And so tell me more. Tell me about wilderness. So wilderness was so like to this day, like will probably be the hardest thing I have ever done. It was a bare bones program. So for people who are listening, if you are not familiar with what backpacking is like recreational backpacking, which is funny as I do that now for fun. It's basically you are hiking with all of your stuff on your back and you're moving from one place to the next in this kind of nomadic style. And so wilderness therapy uses that milieu for struggling teenagers. It's a group of struggling teens with guides that kind of switch out every week. And we follow, you know, the protocols of like backpacking. So we would like move camp every day with all of our stuff. And then therapy would kind of be woven into the experience. So Mm -hmm. there would be therapeutic groups that we would have where maybe we'd have a group about body image, for example. But most of the therapy happens organically. Like someone is on a hike and they start having like a panic attack because they're so hot and they're not asking for help. And then it becomes this teaching moment of, okay, how can you ask for what you need right now? Mm -hmm. And because the environment is so intense, it kind of forced me to learn things really quickly and see the impact of my choices in a very immediate way. So Mm -hmm. taking that same, a similar case study of that was I would not ask for help for shelter building. And that was kind of my way of being like, screw you to the program. I was like, I'm not going to take it to the man. Yeah. I was like, I'm not going to take any advice from any of you. (laughs) Like I don't want to be here. And so I'm not going to ask for help. I'm not going to go along with any of this. And how old are you at that point? I was 17. 17. Okay. Yeah. Cause I had been struggling for a few years at that point. I think for most families, Wilderness or residential is like a last resort. It's not often the first thing someone says. So we would use tarps for shelters. We didn't have tents and you just Mm -hmm. like tie a rope between two trees. So I did not ask for help with building my shelter and I got rained on bad. And I woke Mm. up in the morning and I'm sitting in this soaking wet sleeping bag. All of my stuff is wet. You know, I like they come and they bring me my shoes because they take your shoes at night so you can't run away. They bring me my shoes and I go to breakfast. Everyone else is totally dry, even though it was raining. And I realized like, 
I am being stubborn and not asking for help. And I just got rained on. Like I need to ask for help. I need to learn this skill. That's so interesting. I was just in a conversation earlier today. And I think a lot of parents want to like land this message Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. when their kids are so stubborn around whatever. And it's like, you are not hurting me. You You're are hurting, hurting you. yourself. Yes. But the dynamic mm-hmm. becomes one where even as they hear the words, it's still the belief of the kid where it's like, no, I know this is more important to you. I believe this yeah. is more important yeah. to you than I am. And that hurts. So my way of hurting you is shitting all over this thing that's important to you. Totally. Even as the parents like, but you're hurting yourself. You're not hurting me. It's, yeah, I feel like there's yeah. this piece of like, oh, really? Yeah. I'm not hurting you. You're getting pretty worked up. Yeah. About you seem that. to care a lot for someone who's yeah, yeah. not hurting you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I love that. I mean, I can see the, like, that opportunity yeah. that you had yeah. where everybody's just peacing out, having mm-hmm. breakfast mm-hmm. around the fire. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I'm like miserable. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is only totally. affecting me. Totally. Oh, shit. Yeah. 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 And also like there are, my actions have consequences. Like if I don't ask for help and learn how to do this, I'm going to have another wet night. Yeah. And I think too, in that same vein of the lived experience, like talk therapy, I wasn't finding my way. I wasn't talking my way into confidence or a feeling Mm. of power or uh, competence But, you know, after spending like weeks hiking and making fire with like sticks and rocks, I was like, I'm actually building like all of this counter evidence to these beliefs that I have about myself that I Mm. I can't do anything. Yeah. And I think also just how healing is nature, like just Mm -hmm. being in like the rhythms of the earth and, you know, seeing all the beauty around you and kind of having space from all the pressure and like noise that our modern world has. Did you have that connection or relationship with nature before wilderness? Or is that something that you kind of fell into through that experience? Oh, no, not at all. No. I grew up in a city. (laughs) I had no connection with nature prior to going to wilderness. Yeah. Yeah. So how long were you there? 12 weeks. 12 weeks. Yeah. 12 weeks without a shower. And then what was it like to come out, right? Like we place so much, especially at that age, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard to believe that a change in environment, Mm. you know, like what's alive for us is inside of us, right? It's not in the external environment. However, you just have this profound, extreme Mm -hmm. experience in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. Did you feel confident in carrying into like quote, real life, Yeah, what you had learned and applying it and integrating it? What was that experience like? I love that question. I think, oh my God, I'm like, you've touched on so many things that I think about often, which is the value of a different setting, a change in environment Mm -hmm. and the lack of integration that I think most residential programs offer. So after wilderness, I got sent to a therapeutic boarding school Mm-hmm. And I was there for nine months and I actually- Did like, you go to Virginia? Was it the one in Virginia? No, it was in Massachusetts. Okay. okay. Um, we'll sidebar that Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm like, what's the one in Virginia? <laughs> I think I actually know the one you're talking about though. It was very similar to that one. And I actually ran away, but you know, I got sent to aftercare and pretty much, I shouldn't say pretty much, everyone gets sent to aftercare. 
Like Mm -hmm. once a teenager is sort of in this industry, in this world, I think parents have a tremendous amount of fear about their child regressing when they return to the home environment. And it's like, oh, all this progress is lost and we don't want to risk that. And I think a lot of professionals who are in that industry, like educational consultants, advise the parents to kind of err on the side of caution and send your kid to another place and then another place and then Mm -hmm. another place. So I think that I really struggled when I came back to the quote unquote real world. And it's funny, like when I was in wilderness, we called it the world of clocks because they never told us the time when we were there. I don't know what the purpose of that was. I think maybe to keep us like living in the moment, but I also not to give us any information so we could ever like plan an escape. Yeah. But it's like you're in this insulated, protected environment that has its own language and all of its own. It's like its own culture. Sure. It's actually more real than, (laughs) I mean, we're saying the real world and referencing Mm -hmm. like outside of wilderness, but there's nothing more real than survival. No, Casey, I would say that exact thing because people would say like the real world and I'd be like, this feels like the real world. Like Mm -hmm. even though wilderness therapy has many flaws to it and it's like for most kids, like they're coerced into it. They're not there voluntarily, which is a huge issue. Living with a group of people and eating around a campfire and waking up with the sun and just being in like the, you know, truth and expanse of nature, that feels like the real world. The hospital Mm -hmm. did not feel like the real world and the therapeutic Mm -hmm. boarding school did not feel like the real world. But I think because of the proximity, actually the immersion in nature, wilderness did feel very true and authentic. So anyways, yeah, it was very, very hard to come home because I had been in this place that no one else would even begin to understand. Sure. Sometimes I would like mention a rule or something that I'd had in one of these places and people would just blink at me like, what? Like, that's crazy. Like, I don't even, and I was like, oh, I didn't even like, that was just how things were. Hey friends, as a podcast listener myself, I always get so excited to share when I find a new show that I think is super useful. So today I wanna tell you about Understood Explains. This is a podcast that tackles one important topic per season. And this season is all about navigating individualized education plans and is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Urtube. Getting the support our kids need in school can feel tricky, and we aren't always sure what it is that they need. When I listened to the episode titled, Does My Child Need an IEP? It offered up so much useful information that I could really see supporting parents who are in this consideration. The host is so knowledgeable and really breaks down the content in a way that helps listener go from completely overwhelmed to actually starting to feel empowered. Other episodes in the series highlight the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, as well as a whole episode that busts common myths about special education. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Understood Explains. So check it out. You won't be sorry. 
Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Thank God, spring into summer is my favorite time of year. After turning 50 last September, I've been really working on my physical health and well being and can honestly say that I am feeling better in my body than I have felt in a very long time. Yes, credit goes to movement and working out, but even more credit goes to how I'm feeding my body. That's why I love Factor. I fuel up with Factor's no prep, no mess meals, 35 different meal choices, and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. I always have a new flavor to explore. It's amazing. You can crush your wellness goals this May, keep time in the kitchen to a minimum, and enjoy effortless support for the lifestyle you want to be living with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust from Factor. Head over to factormeals.com slash joyful50 and use the code joyful50 to get 50% off your first First box plus 20% off your next month. That's code joyful50 at factormeals.com slash joyful50. Again, that's 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Yes, yes, yes. Join me. Join me in the health revolution and feel really good this summer. And I think coming home is so challenging when you've missed so much that's been happening at home. Like in wilderness, sometimes we would see planes fly overhead and it would be this reminder to me of like, oh, the world is still moving. Like I'm here mm-hmm. and I have no contact with the outside world, but like my friends are like hanging out and going to prom. My family's like, you know, eating dinner and like going to work yeah. and I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. So there's a, I think a tremendous grief that most people leaving feel mm-hmm. of how much they feel that they've missed. And the integration piece is challenging because so much of what teenagers learn, myself included, was in like an artificial environment a lot of the time. I didn't learn how to have, how to kind of adhere to a structure or follow rules at home with the triggers of home, with the challenges of home. I learned it in a very yeah. different environment. So I struggled a lot with trying to maintain the progress that I had made. And I think that I was able to retain some of the really, really key pieces of what I had learned in wilderness, which was a knowing that things could be very different. So even when things got hard, I had a faith that they could change mm-hmm. and a belief in my ability to survive. And, you know, sometimes it wasn't to thrive, but I could survive. Sure. And I think a a deep connection with the earth, with God, with a feeling of Mm -hmm. a higher power that really buoyed me through challenging times. Mm -hmm. So you got home from all of that and you figured it out and then you're all fixed, right? (laughs) If only. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you just summed it up so nicely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's all you got to do, parents. Just send them to the woods. Yeah, and like easy peasy, lemon squeezy. So you have this experience. You're trying to integrate what you're learning. You're realizing, mm-hmm. ah, running away yeah. from the school, yeah. getting home. All those triggers exist. Yeah. What was it for you? Because this is what I'm experiencing right now as I listen mm-hmm, to you, mm-hmm. Kira. Yeah. I have so many clients whose kids are struggling. Yeah. Struggling big with a lot of the things that you struggled with, that you've Mm -hmm, been mm -hmm. so generous with sharing. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking to you and you seem to be a very high functioning, Mm -hmm. thoughtful, 
human. Yeah. Right. And I think it's so important that you're sharing your story because when you're in the gauntlet with your kid, it feels like it's never going to be okay. It's never going to get better. They're never going to be okay. Yeah. And you, and I would say my daughter and, you know, and there's other examples too, but we forget about them or they don't share their story Mm -hmm. as generously as you and Rowan Mm -hmm. is willing to share. And we forget that there's another side to the hard piece. So you get home, you're still finding your feet, right? Recognizing that the triggers are still exist. So what does that look like? Yeah. How did you get from there? How old are you? Can I ask you? Yeah, I'm 27. Oh, you're just a baby. (laughs) Although you do have a fully developed. You do have a fully developed brain. Yeah, I can rent a car now and not pay. <laughs> so congratulations insurance. on that. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> but I mean, so that was 10 years ago. Yeah. That you were in ago. the woods, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, what did 17, 18, so what did like 19 to 22 look like for you? Okay, so I think, yeah, I want to draw a distinction between being functional and being emotionally well and emotionally resilient and joyful. Yeah. Beautiful. I was able to be functional because the fear of getting sent back to treatment for me, because the school that I was in after wilderness was horrific. Horrific in what way? Just in poor systems and abusive and awful like Paris Hilton documentary style? Yes. Like that. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was like, I can't ever go back there. So I'm sorry you had that experience. Thank you, Casey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I got myself out of it. So yeah, good job. Yeah. I just knew that I had to at least keep putting one foot in front of the other. Okay. So I was able to, you know, get a job and go to college, but I wouldn't say, and I mentioned those just because I think that those are kind of markers or indicators that parents and people like focus on as indicators of success. Like a function, like you said. Yeah. Yeah, I I was able to do that, but I still struggled with a lot of what I had at the beginning, which was just this really, really deep sadness and feeling Mm -hmm. like I didn't belong anywhere and struggling Mm. to feel connect, like actually connected to people. And I think something I struggled with a lot was like how my my beliefs about myself would kind of constantly be creating my reality, like Mm -hmm. thinking that I didn't belong anywhere and sort of then, you know, when like I was like 19 or 20, like not going to things that I was invited to because I had already decided I didn't belong there Mm -hmm. and kind of manifesting this rejection over and over again. And like negativity bias on hyperdrive. Totally, totally. Yeah. And, you know, and, I'm I'm sorry, I'm like trying to think back now to like those times. I think like, yeah, I was like functional, but I think I still struggled with a lot of the pain that I had from the time I was young. And I was like still in those cycles of like looking for relief in other people or Mm -hmm. experiences outside myself. And in some ways, like making up for lost time from when I was a teen, because I had missed so much from being sent away. Mm -hmm. I was like, always wanting to be with people and always wanting to do stuff. Cause I was like, I spent so long not being able to do anything. Like I want to, I feel like I'm yeah. having to do everything now. And there's this, a primary 
feature of trauma is something that's too much, too fast, too soon. And I think Mm -hmm. I almost kind of ricocheted the other way. And I was like trying to do so much and drink in so much life and heal so fast because I just didn't ever want to go back to where I had been. Mm -hmm. And then I think kind of 24 to 26, I found my way into a lot more balance Mm -hmm. and not needing to do things so quickly or kind of over-function or kind of healing from a place of believing that I was wrong and something needed to be fixed. Mm. Well, in maturity. Yeah, yeah. Like, I love maturity because it happens no matter what. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Just by. I mean, it's not the be all the end world. all, but it's real, yeah, right? And perspective. Yeah. And I'm hearing you talk about you gathered experiences, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think of the gift for kids like you and my daughter is the gift of these, of the hard, mm-hmm. really tough times and all this mm-hmm. therapy, especially when you land somewhere where it's useful therapy, Yeah, is yeah. that your emotional intelligence is developed in such a deeper way mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. the typical, you know, like run-of-the-mill Mm-hmm. developing teenager, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the easy, the easy teen that easy we all kind teen. of hope we have, <laughs> but there is something there, right? Like mm-hmm. that's what I see in my girl. And I'm wondering if you had this experience mm-hmm. of because of what you went through and the depth, mm-hmm. especially out in the wilderness and really dropping in with people and really witnessing and being witnessed mm-hmm. in your emotional development. Yeah. That if it did it feel when you came back and you were amongst your peers who never went anywhere and carried on, that there was something lacking as far as like the depth of relating Mm. to your peers. Did you notice that or am I just creating that in my mind? Because I like that (laughs) storyline. I would you're like, that sounds really good. So (laughs) does that sound good? (laughs) I would say that. I maybe felt that broadly, but Mm -hmm. I have always had a way of being able to find my people. Yeah. So even when I was a teen, like even, but this is like something else that I struggled with a lot, like in my adulthood. And I still struggle with this is like sometimes outward evidence doesn't like penetrate my beliefs. So Mm -hmm. I can feel very, very alone and lonely even when I have really, really close friends. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've had to really like look at because it seems almost like the wounds that I had as a child, I've been carrying my whole life. Mm. And I have to almost talk to that young part of myself and say like, you're actually like, life is different now. Yeah, Like this feeling was there and it's real and it's not current. It's like a very young feeling. Mm -hmm. So- Even though, yeah, like I did, I would say, like struggle with feelings of loneliness. Like I had even like in high school, like I did have friends who I felt very deeply connected to. Mm -hmm. I just don't actually think I was able to let that love in and really Mm -hmm. feel it. Well, I love what you said around after treatment, that something you brought with you Mm -hmm. was that knowing that things could be different, having faith that things could change, Mm -hmm. belief in your ability Mm -hmm. to survive. And, you know, when I lately thinking about teens and 
what they're moving through. And especially it's so hard to be with that feeling that young teens have that just kind of the doom, the gloom. But when you think about it, like if I've never experienced heartbreak and now I'm sitting in heartbreak, I don't have an experience of Oh, I felt this before and I know I'm not going to feel like this forever. Like all these first experiences are so potent and Mm -hmm. palpable and big and messy. And I know parents want to like yank, me included, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. desperate to pull my kids out of it and help them see Mm -hmm. there's another side. Mm -hmm. So I'm really appreciating that piece that you took away, that knowing You can do hard things. You can move through hard things that your feelings come and go. These are my words, not your words. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Kira, I could talk to you all day about your experience Mm -hmm. and I want to, but- (laughs) There's other stuff, yeah. Yeah, I also want to say, so you've had this huge experience, Mm -hmm. you know, the last 10 years Mm -hmm. of your life, Mm -hmm. growing into today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've taken this work that you've done personally and you've Mm -hmm. turned it into supporting teens that are struggling. Mm -hmm. And I just think that that is so incredible. So will you talk to us about what you do? Mm -hmm. And then I also want to make sure to talk about, like, I have so many clients who want their kids to get help, be Mm -hmm. helped. Mm-hmm. And there's so much resistance. I think there's like almost a commitment to be in. Yeah. No, that's probably not the right language, mm, but it might be. Yeah. yeah. There's this settling into the darkness mm-hmm. and resistance to help. So I want to know about your work, but I also want to know like, as you talk about what you do, how can yeah. parents like get their kids to? come work with you and others and get the help that they need. So I don't know where you want to start. Yeah. That's where I want to go. Well, I think the resistance piece, I definitely want to speak to because I had a pretty illuminating moment about that. When one of the girls I was working with, she was going over basically, as I said before, a home contract that her parents had written up for her. And she was like, I don't want to do any of this. This is so silly. Like they don't understand me at all. And I knew from previous conversations with her that actually everything on the list, she had identified herself as something she wanted to do. But when it was coming from her parents, she had this automatic resistance to it. Mm -hmm. And I remember that when I was a teenager, I had almost this like binary in my head of like, I can be myself or who my parents want me to be, but it's going to be one or the other. And because what my parents were encouraging was be healthy, be responsible, be accountable, be safe. I was like, oh, I'm going to do everything else because I got to be me. Like this drive to be my own person and to individuate is going to come at the expense of everything. If you tell me to drink water, I'll die of dehydration. (laughs) Like I just so wanted to live on my own terms and feel in control of my life. And so I was associating all of these healthy behaviors and stability with being compliant or like giving up my sense of self. So I think for a lot of teens, they're pushing back against outside influence because they're trying to develop their own compass and their own identity. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so big. Mm-hmm. That's so big. And I think that yeah. plays into what I mentioned earlier around me, the parent saying, 
this isn't hurting me. It's hurting you. Right, right. But then when the lens is Mm -hmm. all of these things are me being who you want me to be instead of me being me, like all of this is related and so powerful. Right. It's like, I'll actually take the hurt if it means that I'm my own person. Yes. That was like how I felt at the time. Autonomy is, and sovereignty. I mean, it's so, oh man. Yes. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. So I think that understanding why they have this automatic resistance. And it's not that they're trying to be obstinate. And it's also something that people do grow out of. Like later on, I was like, it's actually okay for me to be who my parents also think that I should be. If I'm making choices that are in my best interest, like it doesn't really matter. Like coming from who agrees with it. Yeah. So I know a lot of you out there listening have younger kids as well as teenagers in the house, and I'm excited to share with you about a new show that you and your younger kids are going to love. It's called Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs. The series explores themes like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code breaking, pattern solving, and so much more. Math is geared towards kids ages six and up and can be enjoyed by the whole family. Episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, the perfect length for a car ride, mealtime, break times, or bedtime. Each is stacked with so much laughter that your kids won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. I think for teenagers, it's important to help them feel that they are in control and like to highlight the choice that they're making when they're making a choice. Yeah. So I mean, as soon as you start talking about home contracts, whether it's like the therapist wrote this or the parents wrote this, it's like, no, no, not, you know, we talk about making agreements Mm -hmm. and it is a co-created yeah, I experience. And when the yeah. agreements aren't useful, it's typically because the kids were done yeah. with the whole experience and yeah. just said, fine, whatever, yeah. I'll do it. Yeah. And then they don't do it because right. ultimately they just were trying to get out of this judgy, yeah. critical conversation that they were in with you. Totally, so totally. yeah, that really yeah. highlights that. So that being said, mm-hmm. yes. now it's like, oh my God, you're mm-hmm. in the dark hole. Mm-hmm. Let's get you some help. Yeah. So you work with teens that yes. are struggling. Yes. 
Boys and girls? Yes. Okay. I'm sure you have plenty of parents who are like, oh my God, I think that you would be so magnificent for my kid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do I get them to come talk to you? Mm -hmm. Do you get that question? I do sometimes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, or even that reluctant teen who's Mm -hmm. like, fine, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll do it. How do you? Great invitation. (laughs) Fine, I'll do it. (laughs) I have two teenagers. Well, only one now. Been high reps lately. So what does it look like to encourage them to be willing to do the work? That's a great question. Do you have the magic answer? (laughs) Just you wait. (laughs) The magic formula? I'm still in the lab working on it. But I would say like, I don't have an agenda with them when I first talk to them. Because teenagers have like BS radars. Oh, yeah. They know if you want something from them. They know if you're- It is fine-tuned. It is so sharp, so on point. So when I first talk to them, I'm not trying to get them to open up or want to Mm -hmm. do the work. Like I'm just there with them, trying to get to know them, you know, following whatever threads they bring up and trying to establish just that sense of rapport and connection. And I think that, you know, it's important, like I really listen when they talk. And a lot of times people like listen to respond or they listen to have something to say, not to understand. And I'm also not afraid to like let my emotion show, obviously in a way that's appropriate. I'm never hijacking the moment or making it about me, but I remember sharing with a guide in wilderness once a story that I told many therapists and I could feel like, oh, you're actually like feeling this pain with me. You're not mm. just listening to me. You're going there with me. So I would never, you know, like collapse into emotion, but when they speak, like I allow it to touch my heart. Mm. And I think people are more willing to be open if they know that they will be received. Mm -hmm. So it's really simple, but what I'm saying, but like really deeply listening for the sake of understanding is huge. Mm -hmm. This is something I say to parents as well, but that I also try to observe is relating to your child as someone who is whole and healed and powerful Mm -hmm. and holding them in that vision when you're interacting with them because it naturally elicits a motivation in someone when they sense that they're regarded that way. Yeah. Yeah. Having faith. I mean, and I just think about the kids that are struggling like you were and Mm -hmm. to have a parent say, one, yes, I see you in this and I trust that you're going to make your way out of it. Yeah. When they don't. Yeah. I think is such a powerful gift. Totally. So powerful. And I love what you're saying, Kira, because I'm so grateful for people like you and Aww. others who work with the teens. I don't work with teens. I work with their parents. <laughs> <laughs> and absolutely like feeling into when it's time for outside support. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm also hearing just really powerful tools that I love talking about listening without an agenda. Yeah. Like listening to listen and to understand and to get a bigger picture about what's going on for your kiddo. And when you talked about the guide, like to me, that sounds like you felt attuned Mm. to. 
Yes. Right? Someone's seeing and hearing you without this added like, how can I make you feel better? How can I fix this problem? How can I change your mind? Yes. We don't always have to go there. Totally. Yeah. It constantly blows my mind how brilliant all the teenagers I work with are because Mm -hmm. I see over the course of our time together, I'm really not doing that much. <laughs> Don't tell the parents. Yeah, that are paying it's, the it's big me. Bills. <laughs> <laughs> they know. They know. Yeah, they do. Yeah, we'll get there. It's so interesting. I think that there. Well, I know because as a parent myself, like mm-hmm. there is this urgency. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's this urgency around time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and doing enough and the traditional timeline, which I mean, like, yeah. well, four years of high school, four There's years of college. college, you're out on your own. Yes. Yeah. You know, and it's just not real. No, it's not real. And I think that when our kids are struggling, it's hard to be with the time it takes for them to continue to grow and evolve. Mm -hmm. And it's heavy work around patience and Mm -hmm. trust, which Mm -hmm. can feel impossible, especially when our kids Mm -hmm. are, you know, self-harm is like, it's interesting. And I'd love to hear your take on this, but self-harm is so hard for parents to hold because it's violent. It feels violent. And it's also quote, simply, right? Yeah. yeah. A coping skill. Yeah, yeah. It's just an unhealthy coping skill. Yeah, yeah. And we get really worked up. And it's not always an indication of suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you feel comfortable talking a little bit about, because I know I have yeah. clients and I know that there's mm-hmm. listeners whose kids, they know are self-harming and it's mm-hmm. just terrifying to them. Yeah. Are we holding it too heavy or what do you think? And I know it depends on the kid. Yeah, yeah. A hundred percent depends on the kid, especially in the point you are making that for some people, they are self-harming, but they're not suicidal. It's a way Mm -hmm. that they're coping with the pain that they feel. For some people, they're self-harming because they are suicidal. And it's a way that they feel that they're getting closer to Mm -hmm. that, to doing that. Yeah. So I appreciate the language you use, how you describe it as a coping skill, because that was totally what it was for me. When I first, the very first time I did it, I remember feeling like my body was on fire. I was so upset and I just didn't know how to move the energy. And it felt almost like this balloon was like swelling up. And then that just like popped the balloon. That's so interesting it kind of brought things to a close and obviously not in a long-term way, but I was 10 years old. I didn't know what to do with these big feelings. For me, there was very much a mental component as well, where I felt like I was matching the pain that I felt inside. Like I was like making it more real. It would almost kind of validate the pain that I felt or like put it someplace else. Like I was Mm -hmm. carrying so much shame and I didn't know what to do with it. And so that would relieve it for a little while. It would help Mm -hmm. me feel like I had done something productive towards changing myself because I hated myself so much. Yeah. It's like a distraction. Yeah. Yeah. I've also heard it described as 
like the experience of numbness Mm -hmm. and not feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And then seeing your own blood Mm -hmm. as like, oh, I am alive. Yes. Yeah. For people who are very like dissociative, it kind of brings them back to their body actually. It's like, if you're in this spiral, it like cuts it. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's like the balloon. It like brings you into like a moment of calm in a way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when we take it away, like the act of hurting ourselves yeah. to distract or to mm-hmm. be alive, it's kind of a brilliant process. Yeah. I mean, it's a yeah. quick fix. Obviously it's not healthy, nor would we ever be like, I have an idea. Yeah. But <laughs> have you? I know what's going to yeah. help you right now. Here's a razor blade. But <laughs> I feel like I feel less afraid mm-hmm. when I understand that it's useful. Yes. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. And I think that was why I was saying in the beginning, I so appreciate the way that you language it as a coping skill and not like a problem behavior, which mm-hmm. is frequent language for things like self-harm or substance misuse. Yeah. Because it's strategic. It's efficient. Right. It works. Right. And then when you have that framework, you can actually kind of create some distance with it and not be like, oh my God, this is this awful thing that needs to be fixed. It's like, oh, you have a need that you're meeting in this way. What alternative strategies could we find that are going to meet that same need, but in a way that's not inciting more harm for you? Yeah. So I think for parents listening who do have teens, having that understanding of what it is can be really helpful to just take some of the fear away from it, that it's a strategy they've identified. Do you have 15 more minutes? Can we keep talking? Okay, great. Because I just had this huge (gasps) epiphany. You know, we talk about, you know, it's no longer (laughs) acceptable in many circles to spank your kid, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And giving them a hard swat on the bottom Mm -hmm. is a short-term tool for shaking things up, Yes, right? Yes. And if we don't want to spank our kids, Mm -hmm. we've got to add more tools to the toolbox so that that one Mm -hmm. falls to the bottom. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. feel like it's kind of that same mindset when we've got a kid who that's the tool that's helping them is self-harm. And so instead of demonizing the tool that's offering them relief, there's this opportunity to grow the toolbox so that that particular one falls to the bottom. Yeah. And they have yeah. more things that they can lean on. Yes. Yes. To handle what's coming up, especially for the long term. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's like you can see that it's effective in the moment because mm-hmm. it's an extreme intervention, it's affecting the body. So mm-hmm. it's like you're going to feel that instantly. And you want to have more at your disposal. So that's not your first course of action. Yeah. Yeah. Do you work with kids, you know, that are self-harming? And yeah. So I'm thinking about, you know, the listeners and Mm -hmm. who might want to have this kind of conversation with their teen. Mm -hmm. What tips do you have from your own experience and through your work with teens? What's the perfect way? No, I'm just kidding. But how can we create openings to have conversations like this mm-hmm. where we can say, I see you, I see that you're struggling. Yeah. I see that you've found this way of helping yourself and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm here to talk. Like, Or maybe it's where are we getting it wrong? Like, what do you hear from the kids that you work with mm-hmm. that they wish their parents understood? 
Okay. A lot of times they say, I wish my parents knew that I wasn't doing this for attention, that this isn't a choice. I think yes, a lot of times, especially for parents who didn't have challenges with their mental health, they're like bewildered. They're like, why are you doing this? This makes absolutely no sense to me. And so they sometimes assume that it's for attention or because their kids are lazy or they're trying to cause discord in the home or something. And teenagers often feel so misunderstood by that, that it's kind of completely missing like the pain that they're actually in. So dismissive. And I think they also say that they wish their parents understood that they don't expect their parents to fix it either. Mm. A lot of times they'll say like, I don't really open up or share about this because my parents either just give me advice or they blame me for it or they invalidate how I feel. And so I keep this to myself. I want to double down on that. They don't expect you to fix it and that the value you bring is not in having all of the perfect answers or the magic formula all the time, but just being there for them. Yeah. Yeah. And being there can be a quiet presence. Yeah. Right? We can be there without even opening our mouths. Yes, absolutely. And as I say that, I'm recognizing on my end, Mm -hmm. my work with the parents Mm -hmm. is figuring your shit out so that you can sit there quietly. Yeah, yeah. Like doing whatever you need to do to tend to the fear and the anxiety that you have for your kid Mm -hmm. and find the faith Yes. Right? Find the faith because they need to know that you have faith in them Mm -hmm. to move through it. Yeah. Because when I didn't have that faith in myself, I needed other people to hold that for me for some time until I could find it again. Oh my gosh. I don't even think we actually did any of the questions that I wrote down for you, but that was so useful. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I'm going to have you back on. This is the beginning of a lifelong relationship, Kira. So glad. I am so glad to meet you and to know you. And I'm so grateful that you share your story and that you work with teens, that you advocate and stand for teens. Thank you for who you are. Thank you. Do you have any final words that you want to leave listeners with as I wrap us up? Yes. One piece I want to offer is how essential self-forgiveness is on both Mm. sides for the parent and child. Because I think that self-awareness is possible with self-forgiveness. When I was in treatment, I kind of saw this pattern in so many teens where they would like not want to look at what was happening because it was so painful to see their own role in what they'd created or just admit how they'd been hurt by other people. And I think for parents too, there's like so much, you know, self-blame and self-criticism. Oh my God, I shouldn't have said that one thing on Tuesday the 7th at 12.02 PM. Like I just ruined my kid for her whole life. And on my side too, I carried a tremendous amount of guilt and shame for years of like how much I hurt my family Mm -hmm. because we didn't really talk about this much. Like I was really, really challenging and I was often in very dangerous situations and did things that terrified my parents. Mm -hmm. And I realized like in those years after I'd come home, I remember I was like, 
doing something in the kitchen once with my family. Like I was like making a pie or something. And I noticed like how much I wasn't actually in the moment. I felt this like kind of wall around my heart because I was like, wow, I missed so many nights doing this because I was away. Mm. I'm such a bad kid. Mm. I hurt my family. I don't deserve to be here. And I could see like, I'm actually not available for what's here now because I'm still holding on to so much shame and guilt from how I was. And so I think people need to infuse their process of awakening and doing the work with that self-forgiveness so they can continue to be open to what's coming. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's led me into another thought. <laughs> another epiphany. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious because, and this is totally a personal side note. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I've been thinking a mm-hmm. lot about I'm reading people's books and I'm mm-hmm. continuously learning about this interpersonal relationship, parent-child dynamic. Mm-hmm. And as I learn and grow, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, well, I could have done that better. Yeah, I could have yeah. done that better. Yeah. So I really appreciate you talking about self-forgiveness. Yeah. I'm also thinking to myself, like I'm so in awe of my daughter's growth. Yeah. And the hard days are still very right there. Yeah. You know, like they feel like recent history. Yeah. Yeah. Not ancient history. Yep. And I bring it up and I don't bring Mm. it up like, God, remember when it sucked and you were a nightmare? Yeah. But I do bring (laughs) up like, it's amazing to me. You know, you're in this healthy dynamic. And I think as I'm listening to you talk, I'm doing my own kind of personal inventory around... Mm. Maybe I can let go of that and let her be the one to say, yeah, remember when it was really hard and now look at where I'm at now and let her connect those dots. Because I wonder if I am creating an experience where she's then going back to, oh yeah, when I made it hard for everybody. And Oh, I can't speak for Rowan because she might have that experience or a different one. My mom often says that to me and I actually feel her pride in me when she says that. Yeah. 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 It might be a little both and there too, totally. right? But what is awakened in me is a different awareness around that. Yeah. So yeah. thanks for that. Of course. What does joyful courage mean to you? So, so funny. I was like looking up the etymology of both those words because I love <laughs> doing that whenever I'm trying to go into the yeah. roots of what a word is. But my own answer to this is like, Joy to me has this depth to it, and it almost has this acknowledgement of all. Like it's to me, it's this very, very inclusive term that has curiosity and fascination and movement to it. And I think that it takes courage to feel joy because I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people as well sometimes struggle in healing or recovery because they're so scared of feeling joy or feeling good in some way and then losing it. It's almost Mm. like loss is like more painful than ignorance. So I think joy and courage go hand in hand, that it takes courage to be open to joy. Mm. Thank you. Where can people find you? And follow your work. My website is hominginstinct.org. And from there, people can find my Instagram, which is just my name, Kira Fanlow. And as well for parents who are interested, they can find my Facebook group 
for support group for parents where I post a lot of like live videos and other resources, but my website's a good place to go for all of it. Yeah. Okay. We'll make sure the links are in the show notes. Thank, Thank you, you so much. My this pleasure. So great. Thank you so much for having me, Casey. Thank you so much for listening in today. Thank you to my Sproutable partners, as well as Chris Mann and the team at Podshaper for all the support with getting this show out there and making it sound good. Check out our offers for parents with kids of all ages and sign up for our newsletter to stay connected at besproutable.com. Tune back in later this week for our Thursday show, and I'll be back with another interview next Monday. Peace. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.